Hello, and welcome to the Grumpy Economist podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and the Grumpy Economist is John Cochran, the Rosemarie and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the proprietor of the Grumpy Economist blog. And so, John, um, policy divergence is, is starting to happen now. Some parts of the country are beginning to reopen in the wake of COVID-19. Others still pretty well locked down. And you and I have been talking ever since the start of the pandemic about what was necessary to get to reopening, how you do it safely, how you do it smartly. So the conditions obviously vary across the country, but how confident are you at this point that we're going to be able to stick the landing on opening back up safely? Uh, not at all confident, uh, but I do wake up this uh, week with just a little bit of hope. Um, uh, yes, so, so things have to be tailored to local circumstances, and it's just not going to survive the idea that uh, you know towns where there is one case uh, are going to stay locked down indefinitely. Um, so that's not going to happen whether we like it or not. The current uh, debate was between um, the... Uh, it remains. The current debate is uh, we got to ro- open up, says one side. And if you do that, we'll get a huge second wave and it'll be worse, says the other side. Uh, that That's an uncomfortable debate. Um, <clears throat> and uh, that's that's where I see hope that uh, the opening up might might work and that the predicted big second wave might not happen. Now, um, for for weeks now, what I have been calling for, what others have been calling for, what everybody's been calling for is you got this time of lockdown. Use that to get the public health that has to take over uh, to be there to put out the embers, the widespread uh, testing, the tracing, the um, uh, the detailed, careful rules about how, what different things can do and how to, how to work that. I, I had been very depressed about two weeks ago because that wasn't happening. And that's I titled the blog post, The Dumb Reopening. Uh, the, the smart reopening was going to be the reopening uh, where we take our, our governments had taken that month to put in place all the clever policies, the health, um, the, the public health that should have been the policy all along, that the measuring, testing, tracing, and so forth. Uh, we don't have that, so we're we are heading to a dumb reopening um, with with very little of that in place. But I I do so I think it is possible. <laughs> I never want to forecast, especially the future. I think it is possible, though, that this could work. Uh, and that is, uh, and, and I'll go on a, long, a little more on that if you want, but I think that's the bottom line of, of this week is at least there's a scenario where the dumb reopening could lead to a steady uh, and then slow um, cut down of this disease. One of the things that we're seeing in the in the popular press and on social media is a real vitriol in some cases directed at the, I guess what you could call the policy outliers. So for instance, on the one hand, you take a country like Sweden, which has had one of the least restrictive approaches to handling COVID, and they are pilloried in some quarters for needlessly risking lives and not taking this seriously enough. And then on the other hand, you take a place like California, which has been very restrictive and placed a a ton of prohibitions on behavior that some people think has gone too far. So, John, it's it's been a couple of months now. Do we have a sense, looking at those two extreme examples and everything in between, do we do we have a sense of how much of a difference the public policy measures make in stopping the spread? Uh, yeah, it's a contentious area, and so we have to. Uh, I'll also try to be uh, respectful of people whose strong opinions go the other way. Uh, but 
I think relative to the predictions made before this stuff was going on, um, the course has been uh, not as affected by the different policies as you think. Now, we may complain in California and New York, but um, in, in Europe, they are literally not allowed out of their apartments uh, all day long for six weeks, and there's cops on the streets stopping them. So there's, there's much more lockdown available if you feel like complaining about what we got now. You know, the prediction was that unless you lock down, you're going to see um, millions of deaths and uh, sweeping through the population in a matter of weeks. And that just did not happen. Um, stronger. And that's where my hope um, for the future comes down. Um, staying safe from a disease is something that requires every minute daily decisions by normal people. And governments have very uh, crude instruments to try to get us to make those decisions, like shutting off all businesses. But it really comes down to, uh, you know, you and me, do we put our masks on? Do we take a bus? Do we walk uh, decisions? And I think what's happened is that um, this thing is, uh, the disease propagation is not just biology, it's 99% economics. It's uh, do you and I make the decisions to do safe things? And I think what happened is as soon as people realized this was serious, uh, they stopped all on their own going to bars, uh, restaurants, um, the, the big super spreading events that are, are where most of the action happens. Um, and that you can lock down or not lock down. As long as people got that message, it's going to stay contained. And that's what gives me hope. Can we talk a little bit about the the practice of, of modeling? Because it has played such a large role in how we try to understand this disease. And while you're not an epidemiologist, John, you are an economist who has an awful lot of experience with how the whole modeling process works. So when we were back at the start of this and everyone was desperate for information about how any of this was going to look, the models were treated in a lot of quarters as sort of ex pronouncements, the definitive word on what the world was going to look like because the experts had spoken. And now that some of those early models have proven wrong, the opposite is happening. And you're hear, hearing critics say, you know, look, they botched it. We could never trust these things in the first place. It, and both of those reactions strike me as probably paying a little bit too much attention to the scholars themselves, the personalities, and, and not nearly enough to how these models are built and what causes them to either track reality pretty well or to sort of lose the plot. So can you give us sort of a, a modeling 101 so that we, we have a better sense of how to parse these things and how to understand what's reliable and what isn't? I think economists actually have some, well, well, wise economists, old enough economists <laughs> have something to offer here because we've been through this. Uh, remember, um, some of the first big computer models were in the 1970s, the limits to growth models and the Keynesian macroeconomic policy models which were, uh, well, it's, it's a fairly simple structure, really. You just put a bunch of equations together on the computer and, and the equations say, here's what's going to happen tomorrow, given what happened today. And you let it rip and see what happens. Those were catastrophic failures. <laughs> and I, I, I think that lesson ought to at least permeate uh, economics. Uh, that has given us a certain uh, humility over the, uh, the scientific approach tends to be you throw together a big black box and you kind of hope that even if each of the individual equations is a little bit uncertain, that the, the, the wisdom of the crowd comes in. It turns out the opposite. 
Um, when you just throw things in a big black box that you don't totally understand, they interact with each other in nonlinear and unexpected ways. And, and uh, the results uh, come out um, very, uh, the results come out a mess. I think the, uh, the right approach to models, models, you know, we can't just throw up models. Models is all we have. Um, so, you know, you and I, when you and I are talking, we are constructing a model. Uh, what, what I just said, oh, people are, um, you know, able to avoid the super spreading activities and of their own, they will uh, choose activities that drive the reproduction rate down. That's a model. I, I just didn't write that model in equations and figure out its quantitative predictions and then be able to see the failures of those quantitative predictions. So that's what models are. Uh, I think the the um, the right approach is models need to be much more transparent uh, about um, you know, both the modelers themselves need to be more transparent. The model and source code needs to be transparent so it can be inspected. And the user of the model needs to understand that this model just captures a logic and a set of assumptions that may be right or may be wrong. Uh, the models are, except for the coding errors, which are coming out now as, as kind of a bit of a scandal, the models are not wrong in that they're not illogical. They just make assumptions. And so what this week's blog post highlighted is just sort of the big one. Uh, let's think about how is this disease going to spread? Uh, so, you know, I get it. I give it to you. You get it. You give it to Troy. Uh, and, 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 you know, things go up, things go from there. Um, so you can, you can write that down as an equation and watch where it goes. So the standard model did that. And, and what stops the disease from spreading in the standard model is just that you start running into people who've already got it, and then there's no one to give it to. That's called herd immunity. So that's a logic. And, and if that's, that's the way disease does spread through rats, it just left out an important assumption that people will change their behavior. I wrote down a little model this week in which as uh, people get uh, the disease, as they see the disease around, they take more care and, and undertake activities that are less likely to give them the disease. Now, I made up the equations. Those equations might be wrong. But they capture that logic and they let me understand if that logic happens, where does the disease go? That's what models do. They're, they're great for it, but you can't... The, the scientist in the lab, big white lab coat with the black box model who's tried to make everything uh, fit, a fit, that's very dangerous. And um, you know, you do need big models, but you need to really be careful about explaining and understanding what the mechanisms of those models are and making sure that those models are appropriately calibrated and, and, and fit the data well, which is it's a hard art. Ask me some more questions, and maybe I'll get clear about it. <laughs> when, when we think about how the, the epidemiology feeds the economics here, so we, we were originally hearing projections, as you mentioned earlier, of exponential growth in the disease, and the idea was that we were going to have this big brush fire of infection that was going to burn hot fairly quickly and then kind of burn itself out. And the fears now are something different, which is that you do end up on this seesaw where it kind of gets tamped down. We open things back up. And then because we've opened things back up, it starts to flare up again. And then we have to go back to more restrictive policies, I, I guess, ad infinitum until you get to either herd immunity or your vaccine. And so with that in mind, I, I in no way mean to minimize the human component of that, but I just want to bracket it for a moment as an analytical matter. In terms of the economy, 
which of those scenarios is the harder one to bear, the, the dramatic freefall or the sort of protracted cultural anemia? Uh, I think the protracted cultural anemia is, is the more hopeful one. The, um, the waves of coming and going are going to lead to more of these blunt lockdowns. The, the lockdowns are incredibly, they're, the, they're a sledgehammer. Uh, really, you know, what you need to stop is parties, not production. Uh, and, and because we know, what we know now is that this thing spreads by close personal contact when you're inside and, and talking loud to each other. Uh, it is social, the, the way this spreads. And that doesn't necessarily have to do with work. If we have uh, kind of the slow smoldering uh, thing while we wait for technology to come help us, I think what we can get is people can slowly figure out how to um, distance, uh, how to not get the disease and nonetheless keep their businesses going. If you have to go to all on, all off, all on, all off, it's just going to be much more chaotic. And, you know, if you just look around, you kind of see that that learning Um which kinds of how do you run a construction site that's safe? And right now, I think we're way overdoing a lot of things because we're all nervous about it. You know, look what the poor airlines, you know, the poor airlines are saying, oh, we we'll only have a person in every other seat. Well, that means it's you're going to have to pay twice for the ticket. So they're going to have to figure out just what you need to do. So that process of figuring out what do you need to do and what do you not need to do lets you get back to a something like efficient economy. But that, that only happens if it's kind of steady. Uh, if you have big waves and lockdowns, then uh, then then you're in real trouble. It's easy and, and somewhat understandable when you're in a crisis, especially as a policymaker, to just say, you know, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead, especially because there's such a premium on reacting quickly that you can get away with a lot more kind of blunt force responses. But of course, over the long run, the the bill can come due. And with all the policy interventions that we've seen recently, the, the massive spending, the Fed sort of unleashing the floodgates, the wage supports, what, if anything, jumps out at you as the thing that you're most concerned about over the long term? The thing that even if it's maybe necessary now, you think, boy, two, three years from now, we've just created some real problems for ourselves. Uh, yeah. Well, that's especially uh, it depends on how, how long this goes on. We sort of have a plan to get us through September with only $4 trillion added to the national debt. Um, <laughs> uh, if this keeps going and, and we're into depression in the fall. So uh, I, sort of the nightmare economic scenario is, is it keeps going. It's going to be very hard for the government to stop helping people when it's time to stop helping people. So, you know, suppose the economy is reopened and it's time and the restaurants say we want you back to work, Mr. Waiter. Uh, Mr. Waiter is making more money on unemployment than he ever did at the restaurant. And he says, I'm quite happy with the way things are now. Is the federal government going to really say, well, you know, now, even though the unemployment rate is 20 percent, employers want to hire you back again. It's time to be a little less uh, generous with the unemployment benefits. Um, When do people have to start paying their home mortgages again? I think it's going to be very, very hard for the government to stop paying. And I think it's going to be, we've structured things now as loans. Companies are getting loans that they're supposed to pay back. I think it's going to be very hard for the government to pay back. So I I suspect we're in for uh, many more trillions of uh, federal spending and money creation than has been said. Now, maybe the MMTers are right. And, uh, you know, this is a great chance to just print 10 trillion of money and that makes us all 
happy. I, I don't think that's true. So the, the two, dis, the, the big, if you're not worried about death, the other disadvantage of everything the government is doing is, is we have really set in place a horrible set of disincentives. Uh, the Fed kind of bailed out everybody right, left, and center. Well, the incentive to keep some cash around and to make sure you've got enough to weather the next crisis is then much less because, uh, you know, 2008 was was an expedient because the world was ending. We just did it twice. Now it's a habit and a tradition. I think our, our economy is now, our financial system is just completely used to the idea of private gain, public losses. Uh, you get to make money in good times, in bad times. The Fed will come not not just to prop up the prices, but to make sure that you get to cash out uh, at good prices and and make the taxpayer take the uh, take the hit. And that that makes the financial system much more. Um, the Fed's going to have to do it even more. It's sort of like you know you build a big firehouse and nobody puts uh, puts fire extinguishers in their basements. Well, nobody's put fire extinguishers in the basement now. Everyone says, oh, you can't think about moral hazard at a time like this. Well, we didn't think about moral hazard in 2008. And then the economy got all loaded up with debt again. And now it's three times bigger than it was then. And how much bigger is it going to be after this? So uh, we're, we're sowing the seeds for a, a very regulated economy, a huge amount of debt, and uh, everybody expecting a, a guarantee uh, next time around. So the final question that I'll put to you, you have emphasized repeatedly on these shows pretty much since the start of this, that this is not our last pandemic. We'll, we will have COVID-19 licked at some point in the future, but we'll also be up against something else like this in the future. So let's say, well, hypothetical scenario, 18 months from now, we've we've got a vaccine. This is kind of behind us. And John Cochran is one of the names picked for the working group that's going to make recommendations for how we prepare for one of these things in in the future. What are some of the first things on your mind in that scenario? Yeah, it's uh, um, it's kind of interesting what we have learned in some blog posts about this over the last couple of weeks. There were dozens, if if not hundreds of pandemic plans, nicely authored, beautiful PowerPoints. <laughs> right. Uh, and the most amazing thing uh, surveying these uh, pandemic plans that I, I found was that none of them cited the others. <laughs> that they, uh, you know, the Department of Defense plan and the Health and Human Services plan and the administration plan all wrote down these beautiful plans and none of them even knew that the other plans existed. <laughs> now, if you're going to have a, a plan like this, and, and we saw plans, um, our, our, our governor, uh, um, uh, I think Governor Schwarzenegger put in place the, the pandemic response unit and then Jerry Brown cut the funding $5 million so that he could spend $80 billion on a high-speed train. Um, the, the problem is not going to be writing a... So writing a big plan with, with a blue ribbon panel and, and lots of charts and graphs, that's going to get done. You don't need me. Uh, <laughs> uh, keeping the energy going five years from now when we're hitting the budget crisis... And it's time to, God forbid, you know, just make sure that the masks in there are properly certified and, and have been replaced. That's hard. But it's also uh, you need um, I think we learned from the response of to 9-11, um, you know, when, when the firefighters didn't have the phone number for the cops. Um, what you what you learn in grade school is that you don't just write a plan for how you're going to deal with a fire. You run fire drills. Uh, this. uh, uh Diseases have to be stopped early, fast, and hard by public health, uh, by local public health. 
And, and I can't see any way out of that, but you need fire drills. <laughs> um, the problem is not whether you can get a blue ribbon panel to write down a whole bunch of recommendations. I looked at them. The recommendations of all the blue ribbon panels are great. They're perfectly sensible. Just no one ever did anything about them. Uh, you, you need to, to have the, the, the annual fire drill uh, because this is not about presidential leadership. Uh, this takes low-level bureaucratic competence. Uh, your fire department has low-level bureaucratic competence. Uh, when you call them, they know to come and, and what to do. Uh, so that the, the you know when a new virus is coming in from maybe it's not Wuhan but it's somewhere else next time, uh, we have to have quickly the people who know how to take temperatures and and contact trace and and find out where people have been. That needs to be in place fast, and that that's build that low-level bureaucracy and then keep it going through the years uh, when nothing's happening and it seems like a waste of money. All right. You've been listening to the Grumpy Economist podcast with John Cochran. You can read the Grumpy Economist blog at johnhcochran.blogspot.com. And if you enjoy the show, please rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For John Cochran, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.